Welcome to my TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Tomaszewska. This podcast is about my deep dive into the wide world of wine and some of the discussions which I have along the way. It's about my adventures as a former banking lawyer turned wine industry professional and everyday wine lover turned committed cork dork. Wine is about a lot of things. Geography, climate, farming, viticulture, chemistry, engineering, flavors, the world of the senses, business, passion, story, family, just to name a few of the elements. But wine is also about history. And for today's episode, I've decided to focus on one aspect of early 20th century North American history, the era of prohibition. For me, this topic is not only very interesting, but it's also a critical part of understanding the complex web of rules and regulations which govern how many of us here in North America make, sell, experience, and enjoy wine. I can't think of a better person to discuss this with than my colleague Mark Hicken. Although he is now retired from the practice of law, Mark was previously a well-known wine and liquor industry lawyer with more than 15 years of experience in liquor policy issues. In 2017, Mark was appointed as policy advisor to the British Columbia government in relation to liquor policy and was tasked with making recommendations to improve our liquor policy and regulations in this province. Mark speaks frequently at wine industry conferences and is often quoted in media about issues relating to wine and liquor policy. And most recently, Mark has become the executive director for the Canadian Association for Responsible Drinkers, which we'll speak about later about in this episode. I hope that you enjoy my discussion with Mark Hicken today. Let's fly. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, my guest today. Well, hi, Tanya. Thank you very much for having me on. So we've got a lot of territory to cover here. But before we dive into a discussion about prohibition and modern day rules and regulations around alcohol, I'd like to chat a little bit about your background and how you got into all of this. As I recall, we first met a long time ago when we were both working at the same law firm here in Vancouver. I then went off to live and work and have an adventure in Australia. And when I came back to settle in Vancouver almost 15 later, you'd become one of British Columbia's and Canada's leading wine lawyers and experts in liquor policy. To say that wine law and liquor policy expertise is specialized is an understatement. There aren't a lot of experts like you around. These are not topics that we learned about in law school. So can you share a little bit about what prompted you to become involved in this area and how you created your wine law niche? Sure. Thanks. Uh, I've always enjoyed wine as a consumer, and it's always been uh, an area of sort of academic interest to me. Um, What really prompted me to get involved is that I had a friend who was a wine importer in BC, and he told me that there wasn't anybody Uh, in the province who really understood how the liquor system worked in BC and who was able to provide advice on the regulations that, uh, you know, are part of the system. So I um, ended up uh, sort of thinking about that for a while and thinking that's kind of an interesting sideline area. Um, And I went down actually to UC Davis, which... um, has a program called the Wine Executive Program. I didn't wasn't really sure whether it would be relevant to um, Canadian context, but it ended up being super relevant to the Canadian context. And I learned a lot down there, particularly from a, uh, a fellow who's probably the 
grandfather of North American wine law, a, a guy named Richard Mendelssohn, uh, who I recently saw actually in Kelowna. So yeah, I came back and joined a bunch of wine and liquor industry associations and then just started doing it as a sideline. And then eventually it kind of took over my whole career <laughs> in a happy way. <laughs> and and here you are. And so that's an interesting point. You mentioned the conference that we attended recently, and we'll get back to that. But I remember one of the comments there was, you know, wine law. What is that? Is that a special area of, of uh, practice? Or is it the way that law will apply to the world in which we engage with each other in manufacturing wine? And so that takes us, I think, to the point about here in British Columbia, we have a really complex and layered set of rules and regulations about really anything to do about alcohol, whether it's producing, um, it's distributing, selling, or drinking alcohol. Um, as I understand it, a lot of this regulatory framework is based on and derived from how we emerged from prohibition when it was repealed here in 1921. Um, but before we get into some of the ins and outs around that, I'd just like to chat a little bit with you about the fact that we had prohibition here in Canada. I think that we often think about prohibition um, in the American context, you know, things like the ban on drinking other than sacramental wine, the speakeasy, speakeasy culture, uh, you know, various bootlegging enterprises. But we had prohibition here in Canada as well. So could you provide a little bit of an overview or a brief summary about when and why prohibition started here in British Columbia or, or Canada more broadly? And maybe give a few examples of the types of things that people could and could not do during our prohibition? Sure. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of other places in North America, um, back, um, you know, over 100 years ago now, um, there was a strong push, uh, particularly from uh, religious temperance organizations, um, to try and uh, reduce alcohol consumption or and ban it completely, um, because at the time it was thought that alcohol consumption was the cause of a lot of social problems. Um, and uh, that did happen, and they, those groups pushing for that were successful in British Columbia, as they were in most North American jurisdictions, um, although in British Columbia, prohibition was very short-lived. Um, it only lasted from 1918 to 1921, as you just mentioned. Um, uh, it was... Uh, not successful like it was in most places because, um, you know, when you ban something that is being part of civilization and culture for hundreds, thousands of years, uh, people generally don't accept that. Uh, and they, you know, particularly people who were moderate drinkers, um, they were sort of of the opinion that this is a crazy ban and we're not just not going to pay attention to the rules. So there was a lot of, um, as you mentioned, you know, we had speakeasies, we had uh, bootlegging. Uh, there was a, there were a lot of those sorts of issues, although it just didn't last as long here. Um, prohibition ended in BC as a result of a of a referendum of the citizens of BC, where the people of BC were asked whether they wanted to carry on with prohibition or whether they wanted to change to a system of government control. So those were the only 
two options that were presented during the referendum. Um, and the latter option won quite handily. Um, so prohibition ended in 1921. But you're right, like uh, during that time, uh, it wasn't, it was, um, as, as in many other places in North America, it wasn't uh, legal to, uh, to sell alcohol, um, it wasn't legal to, um, to, to, uh, to be engaged in the wine business at all. Um, there were a lot of um, people who were doing so nefariously, the most prominent of which was actually probably the Prohibition Commissioner himself. Who, uh, <laughs> oh, the was irony. Who was a guy, I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Findlay. And uh, he was the one who was supposed to be enforcing all the laws, and he was actually arrested for bootlegging. Oh, my goodness. Um, before the so, referendum, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, before the referendum. So, you know, it just it shows how kind of foolish some of these, uh, you know, uh, sort of movements are because it did it just didn't work. People weren't paying paying attention to it, uh, and uh, it caused a lot of problems. But there were also a lot of people in in British Columbia too that actually made a lot of money um, through prohibition. Um, there was a pretty um, uh, strong. Uh, uh, industry that carried on after prohibition ended here, supplying the United States. Um, and so you actually would have boats that would go down the coast um, and, you know, smaller boats would come off the shore of Washington State or Oregon, and then they would get the bo- get the booze from the boats and bring it back on shore. So there's actually kind of a, a healthy industry that was created um, during prohibition. You know, the, I think the thing that was quite interesting is that after prohibition ended, as I mentioned, we switched to a system of government control. Um, and the attitude here was that um, it was still could be problematic. And even though we'd gotten rid of prohibition, the only way to reduce those harms was to make sure that government uh, was watching over the citizens in terms of their interactions with alcohol. So, for example, what happened was you ended up having a chain. The only way you could purchase alcohol was through government stores. Um, and those stores were sort of grim Soviet era style retailers. Um, they had frosted glass on the outside of the windows, so you couldn't see what was going on inside the stores. If you wanted to buy alcohol, you had to present a passbook, and they would keep track of how much alcohol you were buying. Wow. Wow. Is bought- there a record of how much, what your volume uh, restrictions yes. were? Yeah. Yeah, there, there was. A, they took kept track exactly of how much you were buying, so so that you weren't buying too much. Interesting. Um, and then when you uh, bought the alcohol, none of it was displayed in the front of the store. It was all in the back. Um, somebody would sort of scurry back, um, then bring your you know your bottle out in a brown paper bag, so that when you emerged from the store with your head hung low in shame, you would nobody else would be able to see that you were carrying a bottle of alcohol. So it was a very, very 
judgmental um, sort of system where you would have, you know, the state is kind of watching over you and making sure that what you're doing is not going to cause uh, harm. So this is really interesting. It leads into uh, another question I had, but the brown bagging, for example, at least I still use that as, uh, you know, a cliche or a euphemism for certain things that is still in society. And I didn't didn't know the derivation of that. And also the tinted windows and the frosted windows. I mean, I see that for other businesses now, um, dispensaries and other things in our society. Uh, so that's quite interesting uh, more than 100 years later. So in addition to, um, you know, the controlled stores and the state monopoly um, with respect to alcohol coming in with the repeal of prohibition, um, you know, are, what are a few other examples of the legacy of um, prohibition now in terms of how we buy, you know, wine, beer, or spirits in restaurants? I mean, we have private stores now, so it's not just the government-controlled stores. But, you know, 100 years has passed, and it still seems that there are some examples of that legacy 100 years later within the context that we're here, let's say, in British Columbia. Um, do you have any thoughts oh, yeah. on that as a few examples? Yeah, yeah, it, it, absolutely. I mean, it took a long time to – well, we haven't completely dismantled the legacy of prohibition. I mean, you know, for a long time in BC, um, it was, you know, men and women had to enter bars separately. Um, you had to, if you wanted to have a drink, you had to sit down at a mm. table. You could not stand. Uh, you at, at one point, you couldn't even have any food. You just had to go and <laughs> sit down and have your drink, and then you would leave quietly. Oh, my goodness. That's kind and, of counterintuitive to today, which is, you yeah. know, please have some food while you're having your wine or your beer. <laughs> really crazy. And then, you know, you you were not, there was not allowed to be any entertainment, Um uh, you know, it was a very uh, sort of, you know, grim. Serious. Uh, it was a serious and, pursuit, it sounds yeah, like. Very, yeah, very serious. And so, you know, and those sorts of rules carried on for a long time. Like even the restrictions on entertainment for a long time in British Columbia, um, there were rules about how much you know the kinds of entertainment you can have could have in a restaurant or bar that served alcohol there were rules about such silly things as the size of the televisions that you could have in a bar in or a restaurant in british columbia um and and there were rules too about you know how much um alcohol could be served to to people and you had for restaurants for a long time you couldn't order any alcohol unless you were also ordering a meal so you were not able to come in and just sit down and have a glass of wine uh you would have to order a meal or for a while it was a bit of a joke because you had to have a serious intention to eat um so you you'd walk into the restaurant with a serious intention to eat and then after having your drink you'd say well actually i've lost my my appetite so it's, you know, often said that through crisis comes renewal, or at least some change. And it seems there were a few silver linings coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of the relaxation of some of the rules and regulations what we have in our market around us regarding the sale and use and responsible enjoyment of wine and other alcoholic beverages. Can you share a few examples of some of these changes or modifications that were made as a result of um, the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic and, 
and whether you think these changes are here to stay or um, the status of those. Sure. I mean, one of the things that I've always kind of thought was weird in BC was the strange reluctance of the licensing authorities and municipalities as well to allow um, drinking outside an establish a licensed establishment. Now, I'm originally from England, and in London, for example, it's very common for uh, patrons of a pub to stand outside the pub, and especially if it's warm on a nice summer night or something, you might stand outside the pub with your beer, um, drinking and socializing, um, and just sort of having a chat with people. Um, in British Columbia, there were very restrictive rules for a long time about uh, patio service. Um, and the, you know, it was very hard to get a patio license. Um, if you did get a patio license, you had to basically build a giant barricades all around it. Um, it was not permitted that a, a server could cross like a sidewalk to get to your patio. Your patio had to be directly adjacent to your licensed establishment. There were a lot of crazy kind of rules like that. They don't really make any sense. And you'd kind of think, well, why would you be so worried about the fact that, you know, the, the, the server is walking across the sidewalk um, to serve somebody. Um, you know, in Paris, I, I've been there quite a few times. And on, on nice warm days, pretty much all the cafes put a whole bunch of tables outside. And suddenly there's a nice little social scene where people can sit down and enjoy themselves. And here it was just not possible to do that because you had to have this kind of fenced off area that where they, where they, where you were allowed to serve alcohol and you couldn't serve it anywhere else except in that fenced off area. So that was a big change that happened during the pandemic um, as a result of wanting to have people sit outside where there's better ventilation um, and less likelihood to, to spread COVID, um, they changed the rules. And so um, temporarily, a lot of bars and restaurants were allowed to have um, uh, areas where they could serve alcohol, which which previously they would never have been allowed to have have done that. Um, and you probably, you know, you can see that Main Street was a really good example. A whole lot of cafes and restaurants along Main Street would have little pop-up patios, sometimes out on the road, you know, or maybe just around the corner from where, they, where the business was. Um, and those sorts of changes, um, I think will become, I mean, a lot of them have been kind of temporarily keep, keep kept being extended, but I think they will change because people now have gotten used to it. And they're sort of saying, well, you know, I've been to Europe or some, somewhere else in the world where this happens has happened for hundreds of years uh, and has never really caused any problems. Why did we prevent it from happening in the first place? And when we tried it out, it didn't cause any problems. It's totally fine. So maybe just changing a little bit topic to uh, away from, for the moment, from uh, consumption and where you consume to what you're having and what you're looking at on, let's say, a bottle or a can of uh, wine or an alcoholic beverage. Um, you know, one thing that came up when you and I recently attended the International Wine Law Conference in Kelowna here in British Columbia uh, is a topic around labeling. You know, there were lawyers and advocates and policy experts from all over the world attending this conference. And we had some discussion around the labeling of wine um, bottles and cans um, and where things are going in terms of 
uh, nutrition panels, listing specific ingredients in the product, caloric content, uh, as well as other types of information statements and warnings. You know, we talked about how the EU now has regulations which have to go on all the labels and anyone importing or sorry, exporting to the EU needs to be mindful of and have and fall within those regulations. And in the States, uh, there's also increased discussion about the labels on wines. Right now, it's not like how we look at food packages here in Canada, where every ingredient is listed. Uh, we don't have that right now in the moment, uh, at the moment for wine. Um, you know, where, where do you think this is going? Where do you think this might head to in Canada with in consumers increasingly want to know what they're, what they're eating, so to speak? Yeah, historically, um, alcohol, wine, beer, and spirits has been exempt from the uh, ingredient uh, labeling uh, and nutritional labeling requirements that uh, are common on other foodstuffs. Um, I think that that is going to change. I think that there will be more of a movement uh, to provide more information to consumers because that's what consumers want. I think they do want to know what the ingredients are in their wine. They want to know sometimes what the caloric content is. Sometimes it's even questions about just traceability and knowing exactly where the, the grapes came from. Um, and I think that is going to become more common. Uh, I think that what we may, there may be a bit of a debate about how much information is required and how that information is presented. Now, typically a wine label on a bottle is not very large. So you don't have a lot of real estate to include, um, all the information that people might want. But happily, I mean, we're now in a, highly technological world and it's not very hard to provide a link you know a qr code or something else so that the consumer can immediately find out um, what the ingredients are in that particular bottle of wine um, what the caloric content is um, and things like that and you know and i i'm totally supportive of that there are some progressive wineries that already do that there's a a winery in California Ridge that's done that for decades. Uh, they always put the ingredients on their labels. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I think that's a good idea. And I think it's the way that things are moving internationally. As, as you had mentioned, it's already going to happen in the EU starting in December. Um, and I think that'll be the way that things move um, uh, around the world. There'll be more. Yeah, certainly from some of the British Columbia producers I've spoken with, this is of interest, and I think people see where things are heading. And you know, your comment about information and QR codes, people um, are really interested in learning more about the product and where it comes from and the story. And I think particularly as the industry is considering uh, changing trends in the demographic and what's happening uh, with wine consumption, and if there's a concern that younger generations are maybe... Um, you know, from an industry perspective, maybe they're interested in a broad range of products uh, in the alcohol sphere and that uh, younger consumers really like to know more about where their product comes from and want to be on that journey. And I think the QR code is something that we're going to see a lot more on wine bottles for that reason and others. I think the traceability one is a great point. Um, but this is all part of the conversation, I think, on on labeling and information for the consumer. And, and just on that, moving to a topic which I know is something you're working really closely 
with right now and is a very hot topic in the global wine industry um, is around health warnings being made about wine products. So for example, this comes up in the context of wine bottle labeling, where there are explicit warnings about health effects of drinking alcohol. You know, Ireland in particular has very prescriptive rules now um, about uh, what goes on labels, um, you know, pictures of pregnant women um, and their bellies on labels and so forth. Um, there's also a lot of discourse around recommended drinking guidelines. So um, here in Canada, for those who don't know, there recently, uh, or last year, I guess it was, was a report tabled by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, the CCSA. And that's getting a lot of global attention right now because uh, it recommended that we, the consumers, have two drinks per week, as opposed to the existing health guidelines here in our country, which would contemplate more like two drinks a day. Now, Mark, I know you might um, refine and correct my <laughs> paraphrasing, um, but in general terms, the CCSA recommended guidelines um, it would be a big shift, a huge shift, not only in the Canadian context, but vis-a-vis what's happening out there globally right now. So, Mark, you've been working very closely in relation to analyzing and, and assessing that report. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, those recommended guidelines, the status of those recommendations, and some of the discussion that's going around right now in terms of um, responding to them or um, analyzing them? Sure. Yes, that those recommendations are obviously a dramatic change from the previous uh, guidelines that were issued by Health Canada. The previous guidelines were uh, put out in 2011, um, and Health Canada asked a small advisory group to look at them and to come up with some recommendations as to whether they should be changed. The report that they that that small advisory group came up with is dramatically different from the previous guidelines. So um, it's kind of was a bit of a bombshell to the to to consumers and to industry alike. Um, it, it, something seemed a little off. It was like, well, either you were dramatically wrong in 2011 or you're dramatically wrong today because how could things change so much in such a short period of time? Um, and, you know, uh, our view um, at the uh, you know Canadian Association for Responsible Drinkers is that this is contrary to common sense. Um, people have safely consumed in moderation for hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, I know plenty of people, friends and family, who uh, have consumed in moderation throughout their whole lives. You know, including my own dad. He's eighty-five years old now. Um, and this sort of thing, like it's, you just look at it and you go, this does not make sense. Like, you know, at a, at a, at a base level. Um, but it also doesn't make sense scientifically either. I mean, there are, there's decades of scientific research that show that those who drink in moderation, uh, live about as long or longer even than people who don't drink at all. And there are, there are literally hundreds of studies of proof that have proved that. And there are still studies coming out now in 2022, 2023, that show exactly the same thing. So I think what happened with this CCSA report is you ended up with a 
a small group of people who um, you know, are ideologically opposed to alcohol, who kind of wrested control of that process. Um, and they um, have just changed the way that they're looking at the science, and they've come up with different conclusions um, in terms of what the risks are. Um, we don't think that this is a sensible way to go about looking at it. Uh, historically, the approach in Canada has been to focus on harmful consumption and try and reduce that. And that uh, approach has been very successful. Um, the vast majority of Canadians, about 85%, drink in moderation. Um, Statistics Canada recently uh, reported that their analysis showed the lowest levels of heavy drinking that they've ever recorded in Canada. Wow. So, you know, this, it, it worked. Like what yeah. we were doing before worked. Mm -hmm. um, and to change the, the public health message from you should not engage in harmful consumption or heavy drinking, to change that message to you should only have two drinks per week and, in fact, no level is safe at all, um, I think that that is going to cause people to stop listening completely to the public health messaging and is actually going to cause harm because people who have an issue with drinking and are drinking heavily uh, or in a harmful way are just going to tune out of that message completely. Um, and I think that this is not a sensible way to approach the situation from a liquor policy perspective. And I guess, you know, I know that you, well, I expect that you've poured over the report and, um, you know, there will be underlying data that uh, was relied upon for those recommendations to be put forward. But what I find is interesting, or maybe in broad terms, is there any um, commentary in the report or around it about, um, you know, we're not living in bubbles. So kind of like, oh, well, how do you balance this with the fact that, uh, that person who has certain number of servings per week of wine also just eats a ton of nacho chips or trans fats or a lot of sugar <laughs> or or other things that apparently, as well as humans we're consuming or how we move in this world, can bring risk to ourselves, to our beings, depending on moderation and our DNA and a whole bunch of factors. So, uh, you know, how did they deal with things like that in the report? In broad terms, I know it's, this is very scientific, yeah. but in broad well, terms... They will they will claim that they try to address some of those issues, but it's not possible to address those issues from a you know from a scientific perspective. There's what they would call too many confounding factors when you're looking at something like this. So it's very hard to figure out when you're you know looking at people's alcohol consumption and if they end up getting sick. Was it the alcohol consumption that caused that? Or was it the fact that they were eating too much fast food? Or right. the fact that they didn't exercise? Yeah. Or, you know. Stress. Or, they, or stress. Or maybe yeah. they have a genetic history of that right. particular sickness. So it's very hard. And in fact, you shouldn't be making um, scientific causation conclusions from these sorts of studies. Because you don't have the data to support that. Right. Um, and it's, you know, particularly when you start then making sweeping statements about no, there's no safe level of consumption and you should only drink two drinks per week. Those are jumps in logic that should not be made based on the uh, underlying science. Um, 
And, you know, particularly one of the things that I think, you know, not not just me, but, uh, you know, academics and other scientists and doctors have criticized this report for is um, exaggerating the risks. And, you know, for example, they might say, you know, there's one point where it says, oh, there's a 100% increase in the risk of tuberculosis if you are drinking in moderation. But tuberculosis is a disease that's you know, almost exclusively connected to poverty and poor housing and poor nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the risk of getting that in Canada is minuscule. It's like two in a million. So even if there's a 100% increase, it's still only four in a million. Right. Um, so it's taking and, a step back or looking at things from altitude about the numbers and practical terms, what this, what this really means. Um, yeah, fa- fascinating. So you've mentioned the Canadian Association for Responsible Drinkers. You've recently become the executive director of that association, and I understand it's a new, uh, newly formed group. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit more about it? Um, you know, who it's for, what your mission is. It sounds to me that it's for awareness raising um, and perhaps uh, making sure there's more balanced scientific information that's tabled in the public forum is an, an arena. Is that is that Correct or uh, what? What? What's yeah. uh, What's going on? <laughs> yeah, the, our objective is to simp- is to provide more sensible, balanced, unbiased information. Um, and if listeners are are wondering, they can go to the website, which is cafrd.ca, um, and they can find a lot of information there about. Um, this uh, CCSA report about uh, the people who are speaking up against it and saying that it's misleading. Um, and you can see much more balanced, um, sort of sensible information about uh, alcohol consumption. And I mean, one of the things, the, the, the real, our real mission is to educate people about uh moderate consumption, to discourage harmful consumption, and particularly to encourage people to make informed choices for themselves. Everybody is different. You know, a one-size-fits-all solution, which is what CCSA is putting forward, is not appropriate in this context. You know, people have different lifestyles. They have different diets. They have different um, medical histories. Um, you know, what you, what people should be doing is educating themselves about the risks. And there could well be people who decide they, they shouldn't drink at all. And that's absolutely, uh, you know, the right choice for them. Um, there could be other people who look at their overall, uh, situation and say, well, I have a family history of this particular type of disease. And therefore, if I'm going to drink, I should only drink lightly. Uh, and then there could be other people who, who, would decide, well, you know, I'm not really at risk because, you know, I I otherwise have a healthy lifestyle. And for me, a moderate consumption can be totally part of that healthy lifestyle and is not going to pose any appreciable risks. Um, and for the most part, um, the risks associated with moderate alcohol consumption are in line with the risks that we accept in life generally. Interesting what you mentioned about uh you know, looking at this from a liquor policy point of view, um, 
And in my mind, when you said that, it took me back to the beginning of our conversation about prohibition and how you said it didn't work, essentially. The people were like, you know what? No, this doesn't make sense for us. I mean, I'm using the vernacular. We'll have a referendum. And there was a considered choice about to come out of prohibition and what that would look like, um, in which case there was state monopoly and state regulations to ensure that there was, uh, you know, for peace, order, and good government and, and health and safety and... Um, so it's interesting. So coming back to that, you know, I've heard the term neo-prohibition um, being used recently in the context of various observers describing, you know, these underlying currents or um, the discourse around things like you mentioned, like no safe amount when it comes to drinking wine, or in the context of labeling um, on wine and alcohol packages, explicit health warnings, you know, things like maybe analogous to what the tobacco industry had, has faced in the past. Um, you know, are you hearing um, neo-prohibition neo come up in, in a global discussion right now uh, about, with amongst wine industry observers or consumers? Or, um, you know, or do you see different perspectives on this inside and outside of Canada? I mean, is it, is it fair or accurate to, to even use this term in terms of the current landscape, do you think? I think it is fair to use the term because I think that there is a um, small but growing and somewhat successful uh, neo-prohibition neo movement out there. Um, and it is um, international. To some extent, it is happening um, at the World Health Organization. Um, and it has been happening to some extent in Canada as well. We have some people in Canada, some who were involved with the CCSA report, who are very anti-alcohol. Um, some of them are associated with um, a, a movement, which is actually a temperance movement. That's how it originally got started. Um, and, you know, I think that it is not, really appropriate. You mentioned, you know, the experience with prohibition. It's not really appropriate for people who have a bias uh, to be involved in the formulation of liquor policy. Got some people who are stridently anti-alcohol um, and they're coming up with these recommendations, which are really out in left field um, on a global context. Uh, but we shouldn't be asking people who have those sorts of polarized views to uh, be involved in this sort of liquor policy making because you're not going to get a reasonable, sensible result which people are going to listen to. You're going to end up with a situation like they had during Prohibition. You're going to end up with bad policy, which doesn't work. And I think that's what you're starting to see here. You're getting bad policy recommendations, which won't work. Um, and are not helpful at all. As I said, people should be making their own choices based on education and information. Um, government should not be telling them on a you know blanket one-size-fits-all basis that this is the solution because it's not the solution um, for individual people. That's just a policy solution that an ideology has created. I think that we could probably go on for a day <laughs> about about this. I know we have discussed it at length before, and I think this provides a really good overview of where we've come from and what's underpinning some of the conversations now and whether we're 
going back to anything or not. Um, so, uh, you know, people can go to your website to learn more. Um, and I would recommend people do so. There's a very interesting um, FAQ and a little bit more about who supports and about the CCSA report. So thank you so much for, for that. Um, I feel that we've really just scratched the surface um, on this during this discussion. I think we could speak for hours uh, but we need to leave it for today. So I'd like to thank you for joining me and for sharing what I know is really just a small amount of your vast knowledge and experience in these matters. I'd also like to thank you for your efforts to raise awareness for consumers about all of this, um, the information, the statements swirling around out there about health warnings and claims in relation to enjoying and tasting wine. Um, for me personally, my view is that we as consumers should be afforded um, balanced and scientifically sound information that we can rely on to make our own choices um, regarding our responsible consumption of alcohol. So I really would love to thank you for your contribution. And I look forward to hopefully clinking a glass of Pinot Noir with you soon. Absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you for joining me on my TT Wine Explorer podcast today. Stay tuned for the next episode. You can follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until then, remember to keep tasting, learning, and living. Mm-hmm.